0: so that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Don. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So where in the world are you, Don? It looks like we've got a very fancy setup there to do interviews.
1: Oh, um, I'm actually in a, a cigar room in my home that I converted into a studio during covid when I uh, realized I had to get off a plane and, and uh, quarantine for a year. <laughs> so wow. I, and where uh, is
0: home for you? Which part of the world is home? Uh, Baltimore.
1: Maryland. Okay, Baltimore. Yeah. So it's
0: um, cold weather right now.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah, we're uh, probably punching around 10 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: Okay, that's so, not uh, really fun. That's not a lot of fun. So just stay indoors and stay warm. Anyway, let's get straight into today's episode because it's very interesting. Your work, at least your latest work anyway is centered around extracting some of the principles from Japanese culture, but not today, from a long time ago. Let's talk about that.
1: Sure, yeah, that that was my original uh, venture when I I left MIT and I ended up looking at uh, this planet and humans. And then I ended up teaching at Hopkins and doing my graduate work there. I began to realize there was uh, some issues within the executive MBA programs around uh, managers who were getting frustrated yes. with all these yes. uh, great theories and management uh, consulting efforts, but they weren't seeing the kind of bottom line impacts. They were, they were uh, frustrated with implementations. And then I started doing research and uh, there were millions of papers published on management theory failures. So I, as a scientist, I thought that was really, really interesting. And I started going back in history Oxford University gave me permission uh, to use this ancient manuscript that was used to train managers uh, about 700 years ago in, in the samurai organizations, because they had to run great companies too. Yes. And I found just correlations that a lot of what they were dealing with, that they documented in their training programs, was what we're dealing with. So that's when I began to look at what's the biological nature of this, that this must not be cultural, it must not be uh, something that's related to, um, uh, I guess the, the time we live in it's, it seems to be timeless. And so that's what led me on the journey. And so when I wrote the code of the executive, uh, that book, it ended up taking off into a dozen languages. And I began speaking on this and that's how I got pulled into this area of CEO development and, and management yeah. training using these, uh, unusual techniques. But, um, But then we started applying it. We started, companies started hiring us saying, wow, we want to grow our sales two to three times this year. What can we do? You know, that kind of thing. And so we started applying these scientific principles and, um, as it took off, uh, I started writing more and researching more. So that's what I do now. I, I spend a lot of time uh, doing workshops for companies and, um, and just spending time with some really great people that seem to have been attracted to this work. And, uh, course, me attracted to their work as well. So I'm having fun.
0: So why did you initially have the focus on Japan? Was there something that triggered that?
1: Uh, I was um, doing a lot of expeditions around the world in extreme areas because I wanted to see how does uh, biological leadership work? In other words, how uh, how do humans organize? Why is it some civilizations or companies uh, outperform the rest? And in those that were outperforming, they seemed to ignore thought leadership of the day. In other words, they their techniques were different. They were going against the grain of what was commonly accepted as management uh, practice and and leading edge thought, and they were yes. doing something remarkable. So I I, would, I wanted to find this out. So I spent a lot of times in, in, in uh, excursions in Africa and Asia, and um, there was a lost civilization that is now known more of uh, called Bhutan in the Himalayas. And I did an expedition there um, as part of um, a part of this, this thing that I was doing, and it end up, ended up being interesting because a lost civilization has no contact with us, and so how they're leading and uh, developing their own organizations, uh, if it relates to how we're doing it, it, it must be biological. About a month into this expedition, um, I was playing a Tibetan fortune telling game (laughs) because you get kind of bored. There's no there's no electricity. There's uh, there's no running water. I mean, you're you're out there in the mountains living in tents. And it, it told me to get it told me to drop a project I was doing with my agent at the time, and um, or I couldn't move on to the next level. And that was very interesting for me. So um, when I came back to the States, I, uh, I did that, I, I canceled the current book project. And and then within like a month, I stumbled onto Oxford University's publication of uh, Dr. Al Sadler's work from uh, the University of Australia, which interpreted this ancient manuscript like half a century ago. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, wow, this is really rich. And then I, um, so uh, they gave me permission to uh, republish it. And so I uh, did that copyrighted the the work and really had um, some fun with it. And today, years later, we are still using these techniques in companies. And then we've added a lot of other things to it, you know, around evolutionary psychology and, my latest book with Chris Warner, which we do with NBC, uh, was looking at humans in death zone environments above 8,000 meters and how we operate when we're in death zones. So that created that book. So I, I kept building on this ancient okay. and biological uh, um, experimental research, and in each time learned something that allowed me to go into companies to increase their performance uh, dramatically. So now I train about 700 CEOs a year uh, in workshops on, on these techniques.
0: I'm interested in your technique because you almost work like an anthropologist. You yes. serve people and then you <clears throat> extrapolate upwards as opposed to traditional management consultants. I used to be a partner in corporate strategy. We examine mm-hmm. aggregate data across many companies and we look for patterns and then we look for the tools to generate that value and then we push it into the company. How did you develop that technique? Is it the plan to observe people in natural settings or is it by happenstance?
1: It was observation, a lot of it was observation. So when I visited different tribes in different remote regions, I would do a lot of filming, I would do a lot of questioning and then I would learn some things that would hit me like, oh, wait a minute, that's interesting. And then because I was at Hopkins at the time, I had a lot of access to medical research. So I was able to correlate a lot of these ancient and remote learnings uh, with um, medical science, which demonstrated why a lot of management theories do fail, and how to fix it. And it was the and the fixing it was really seeing how we could validate ancient and, and remote practices with uh, medical understanding. And then I began testing it in companies. And so um, it started, you know, some things don't work. I mean, a lot of my ideas, they just kind of flopped and they may not have been transferable outside yeah. a certain culture. Uh, but the few that did work, we just kept building on it. And that's what we do today. I was just in Chicago doing a speech with um, a friend of mine, Bob Burke, has been really a big supporter for my researcher for yes. decades. And he he hardly recognized the uh, the speech because uh, at this three hour workshop I probably changed half of it with with new discoveries, <laughs> so it's always evolving. I'm always learning. I'm making mistakes and learning from those, uh, and that's what I love doing. I love researching and teaching and helping uh, you know CEOs uh, you know d- drive their companies faster and better. Because in a sense, I think it's it's companies. It's, it's the leaders of companies that are changing civilization more than any other professional group. And it seems to have always been that way for thousands of years. But we've never really taken the responsibility to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're making an impact that's going to last for centuries. So let's, let's make good decisions.
0: Also like your approach, which is you're more like an explorer than a researcher. Yeah. And I think that's a very yeah. good way to do things, rather than sitting in a nice office at Yale or something and, you know, reading peer-reviewed papers. But I want to come back to something you said that got my attention. You said it a few minutes ago, and I want to explore that. You said that companies that do well over time tend not to follow the fad of the moment.
1: Yeah, because that, that's an interesting question that I um, noticed that companies would enter an industry as a startup yeah. or maybe as a new entrant, and they would violate expert opinion, you know, they'd violate all the thought leaders, they'd violate all the, you know, the, the latest, uh, management theories and then within their lifetime would dominate their market. And I was curious why no one was talking about that, Yes, you know, and, um, but I found it to be a fascinating area of research and it wasn't really new. I mean, as I, as I went back throughout history, it was similar to the techniques and, and uh, approaches that, like you know, Alexander, or you know, Cleopatra, or, or yes. even you know, Gandhi's effect on the world, and Genghis Khan. I mean, you know, these these CEOs. I mean, a lot of them dominated their markets in their lifetime, yes. and they were doing it by ignoring or or violating what we would see as current thought leadership. And when, so when I looked at companies today, I started uh, digging down in terms of what was going on there. And when we discovered it, it, it was great because then we could start applying it with clients as well and, and then they would start growing faster than they thought. So it was a, it was purely an accidental discovery from a question that that got raised and I guess that's how, great science and philosophy. Yes.
0: <laughs> you see something interesting and you ask an interesting question. So in the way you're approaching things, many people I speak to, they tend to analyze companies, but you're saying any organization, even if it is not a company like an empire, like a city, like a group of people, some of it can be analyzed and the principles of how they effectively organize themselves, we can distill some of them. And apply them to modern corporations. Is that a good way of thinking about the way you're approaching your work?
1: Yes, yes, that's that's probably a very good way of looking at it because um, the approach, since I was coming at it from a scientific uh, viewpoint, is what is it about our our species? It, because how we're leading and how we're achieving success didn't change because there's a there's a new best-selling book out there. Yes, it's been yes. working for millions of years, and yet. Um, we're not really looking there. And so I thought, well, let's look there and uh, began doing a lot of autopsies of dead companies. And yeah. that helped me a lot to start seeing patterns of like, you know, why did they die? You know, what, what were the things that were missing? And uh, that's how we developed this whole issue right now. Like I have this program called strategic evolution where I, I put CEOs through this or executive teams and, it's really, and, and I'm always testing my stuff because I don't want to, I don't know everything. And, and I, I'm always learning from my mistakes, yes. but I'm like, have you heard this before? And it's like, they they shake their heads. No, we've never heard this. And, you know, have you thought about it this way? And, and I like doing that because as a teacher, you know, you want to bring something to students that are that's more of a, an epiphany, an enlightenment versus just repeating, you know, yes. <laughs> what's published. So, um, But yeah, that's where I started. It was more of looking at the species versus um, current analytics.
0: So what are some of the counterintuitive things you are seeing that successful companies do or successful organizations? Yeah, it's... um, Or is it not something that can be codified?
1: Well, generally, I think it can, but it's more of, I think we get too seduced by our tools. Yes. And... When my co-author was pulling the dead off of mountains, uh, Chris Warner, who, who co-authored the book with me, High Altitude Leadership, it was a great research project because we had filming and we had yeah. a, just a live experimentation during this uh, NBC supported expedition. And um, they, the dead are clutching their tools and I found a lot of dead companies are clutching their tools too. And there's nothing wrong with tools. I mean, we need we need tools and we should always be advancing tools. But one of the counterintuitive pieces that we ran into is the dead were not using their tools, the tools were using them. And so we began to see tools seduction as one of the causes of death or lack of performance in organizations, because they would bring in a tool, maybe it would be a CRM program or an ERP program or some quality initiative. And the tool began using the organization And the result was uh, bad, you know, the result was some sort of failure when the, when they started using the tool, however, um, things turned around. And so a lot of times we'll get called into do rescue operations, you know, and so we'll have a chance to see what's going on. And that's, that's typically one of the things we saw. So I think we need to reduce tool seduction, use our tools, but not get so seduced by them would be a good, good way to uh, make that happen. And, uh, and I think a lot of things that we see as bad in terms of management practice can be, um, if we look at them, there's there's some deep value that we're mm-hmm. ignoring. Um, you know, w- one of my dear friends, Cy Wigman, who uh, wrote Reality-Based Leadership, she she has a lot of these just from her experience in applying this type of work. Like, you know, she, I, she got hit uh, when she was in her, when she was younger and in a, an executive career uh, HR would come in and say, we, we hear you're playing favorites. And, uh, her response wasn't defensive. It was like, of course, you know, I, I do play favorites, you know, do you want to be one? And it's like, <laughs> well, wait, you know, I mean, it, it shifts everything. And, uh, so I love, I love working with Sasha. She's brilliant, but, you know, I, I love meeting and uh, being supported by some really brilliant minds. I mean, uh, you know dr david buss who started evolutionary psychology i've learned so much from him and, and we're looking at doing some projects in the future and uh and george stock who started the whole lean revolution and time-based yes. competition and now we're getting into disruption and his latest paper in the Uda loop uh harvard business review has been fabulous so you know working with him on on taking some of this and applying it So I'm really finding that um, there are a lot of brilliant minds out there that when we start looking at this from a biological perspective, opens up a whole series of doors and insights that uh, had previously been overlooked.
0: I like the example of the analogy you gave of the mountaineers clutching their tools when they die. Yeah. It's a very clear example Because I remember back in the day when I was still a consulting partner, the whole SAP wave arrived with ERP systems. Mm -hmm. And every company tried to push it through, expecting the ERP system by itself will make them competitive, which it never really did, right? They had to figure out how to use it. That's a very good example. Also in consulting, you see just where everyone wants the latest analytic tool and it's all an analytic arms race, but no one really knows how to use it. So that's a good example. What else are we seeing? As the counter-intuitive insights,
1: I think uh, one of the things I um, found that CEOs really get a lot out of is I, I, have them look at their current strategic plan and I have them consider: Is it really tactics? Yes. In other words, have you been seduced that your strategy is really tactics? And we and we start and when we look at the autopsies. It becomes obvious that and I was part of the problem, by the way. I mean, I, when I was when I was teaching in the graduate schools. Um, and doing guest lecturing at major universities uh, i was teaching analysis you know and yeah. and a lot of the analysis produced tactical responses in companies and i think that's part of the other problem is we're using analytical tools to create strategy but all we're creating are tactics and uh and george stock said to me the other day on whatever because i meet with these people like weekly yeah. i said that legacy companies tend to fail because when they get and when they get hit by disruptive forces, their response is usually by using legacy activities, leg- legacy strategies, legacy responses to those threats. And that's why they never are able to win. And a lot of those legacies come from uh, those legacy thoughts come from analytical use. Yes. When yes. I looked at these companies that violated everything and dominated the markets, it wasn't about the analysis. Interestingly enough, it was about the intuition. Yes. And this led us into how to alter the beliefs of humans, because if you alter the beliefs of humans, you alter how they see the world and you alter their decisions. And that is how these companies start up and dominate industries by ignoring analysis, ignoring the thought leaders, ignoring the best practices. And uh, then of course they win and then everybody descends on the company to see what they did and they make it a new analytical model, which, Stick right yes. the whole thing. So I think tuition has a powerful force for outmaneuvering uh, the competition.
0: It's a very good example. The example I use with clients is I always tell them that if you look at the leadership of the five largest banks in the United States, they're almost always seeing the same data. Yes, They're seeing the same reports, the same data, but how is it one of them is seeing something different when they look at that data? What makes that possible? That's the part you've got to focus on. And often when I work with clients, I always tell them that if you are spending more than 20% of your time on analysis versus spending 80% of your time on thinking about what you've just seen, there's a problem there.
1: Yes. The thinking part is,
0: is, is the most important thing because one CEO can say, the market is declining, the other one can see something completely different.
1: Yes, that is exactly right. And uh, and yeah, you nailed it. I think that is what is missing. And in fact, when uh, George published his OODA loop theory at, in Harvard Business Review about yes. a year ago, he, uh, he the, that, that was an interesting application of a, a jet fighter's uh, mental thinking that uh, during the Korean War allowed uh, American pilots to outmaneuver uh, these Russian MIGs and the Russian MIGs were superior in, in every yes. measurement, and yet these substandard aircraft could be could have a ten to one kill ratio. And it was interesting to say, how does a substandard aircraft, or if you think about it, maybe a substandard company, how could it outmaneuver far superior forces? Yes. And this is where the loop concept came out of, which was you know observe, orient, decide, and act, and then in the orientation. I said, geez, you know, George, I can put this in this strategic flow that does this. And he says, Don, the strategic flow is inside the second O which is orientation, which is exactly what you were saying because in the orientation, uh, what are your cultural beliefs? What's your, what are your experience? How do you see the world? Because orienting on that data is what changes strategic thrust and advantage. So it's it's interesting. this." what you said is, is 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 true and it's been around us for thousands of years and yet today we don't apply it and i think the reason is is we have a hard time applying art yes what we're discussing here is art it's and, and i and i i tell us you know, it's just like you know you're going to be seduced by tools because it's safer it's yes, analytical. Yes. It gives you the models and the analysis to feel like you understand the world and can control it. And you like that safety. I said, I am inviting you to go into art and art is terrifying and it's uncomfortable. and It's painful yes. because there's no checklist. There's no formulas. There's no equations you're going to have to create. But but uh, like you said earlier, it is in that creation is in that observing the data differently, uh, which has not only spurned scientific revolution, Thomas Kuhn's book on the history of scientific revolution says this pretty clearly, but in businesses today as well. And that's how you get these small companies come in, and they rise up and dominate, because they're seeing it all differently. We spoke
0: about intuition, then I noticed the examples you use sounded very similar to the way we think about judgment, right? You need to have good judgment when you look at this data. Mm-hmm. But let's get into the crux here. I work, as do you work with many executives, but I'm surprised how many of them do not cross pollinate their mind by doing things they shouldn't be doing, going on trips that are different from their lifestyle, seeing new ideas, seeing new cultures. I've met and worked with executives who are so focused on the industry, they have no new ideas to bring in.
1: Yes, right, right. And and unfortunately, I think the, uh, the media or the business publications that we have, uh, the books tend to promote, well, there is this way to do it and there's yes. this right way to do it and there's this base, best practices. And we get pulled down this rat hole of like, okay, I've got to learn what these other people are doing and get better at it. And we don't really get the opposite direction. Like, wait a minute, let's leave here for a second. Let's go yes. someplace different. And the samurai had actually a major section in their training program in the arts. In other words, they encouraged their leaders. Uh, of course, they had to think strategically because not only were there you know, battles that ensued, but their companies needed to be strong as well. But they made sure that there was some artful exploration it could be calligraphy or sculpture or painting or you know language or something to inspire that part of the mind and now we do know as we get more into the brain research that um yeah we need to stimulate that part because that creative area if it goes dormant um all we can do is just play the same game as everyone else and it's hard to win when you're doing that
0: but that is the end game yeah right if we want business leaders, what well, all leaders to be more successful, how do we spark that drive, that difference in the way they see things?
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's the challenge uh, CEO, CEOs have to put on their top priority list because you know, we all talk about seeing things differently. We all talk about innovation, we all talk about creativity, but yes, you know, we yes. did an experiment once. Um, my colleague, Cameron Lugman, um, took some of our samurai research into Apple, and actually uh revolutionized a lot of their management training around this because they were looking at you know how does innovation work in the brain yes and uh it was really great cuz um apple allowed Cameron to teach this uh outside of apple and so we ended up experimenting with this and we did a little test we took like 500 CEOs in in the middle market and the yeah. and in the uh, on the east coast mainly and we did an experiment and we said, hey, listen, we have, we have what Apple uses for innovation and creativity. And you have been um, saying in the media that innovation is, is one of your top three strategic advantages for the future. Like it's the most critical thing you can do. And we'd like to share with you the research around that from one of the most innovative companies in the world. And we literally got zero responses take us up on that invitation in fact the only response we got was someone that told us to take take us take them off the mailing list Uh, so So
0: not one company was interested. not
1: one company responded why is that Uh, that is interesting i think what happens is well one for some they'd like to talk about it but they don't want to do anything about it because they're stuck as you said they're stuck in doing the same thing and You know and the analysis and and just the same path and i don't want to get off it uh others i don't know maybe maybe their secretary deleted the email who who knows what happened (laughs) with that um but it may be that others really it's nice to say that nice things that are the great buzzwords of the day but to do it yeah exactly but to do it it's like petrifying Yeah. yeah you know, uh, it's like, well, maybe I don't know this. What if I am found out to be wrong? What if people think I don't know what I'm doing? What if, you know, and that's that fear. And that's why the samurai death thing was so important. And we try to teach CEOs this, is that executive teams that know how to die properly are more powerful because they're able to give up those attachments that hold them back.
0: At the right time. Yes. It's another way of saying succession planning, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The fancy way of succession planning. Because most times succession planning happens when someone is failing, they don't really admit they're failing, they don't want to give it up, they have to be fired at the borders to remove them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And that's how most succession planning takes place. Even for companies where the CEO said he's thought about it very carefully, he's putting in place a plan. But very rarely have I seen that to be the case. It's often someone is being pushed out.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times the... Um... The idea is, I don't know if you've ever read The Halo Effect by uh, yes, Phil no, Rosenberg. It's a great book. It's an incredible book. I mean, he did a statistically significant view of all this and how, you know, if the stock price is going up, this CEO is fabulous. But if it's going yes. down, oh, they made all these mistakes. But they, what he found out is they're doing the same thing on both sides and when he went to the journalists and the professors and said why did you change your opinion they couldn't answer the question
0: <laughs> well if you look at what's happening right now i'm sure you're familiar with the story of tyrannos and elizabeth holmes and if you read some of the things people say about her i'm pretty sure if she had been successful and they said the same things about her it would have been presented in a positive light she's imperious <laughs> keeps an information to herself and so on so oftentimes We just don't know, well, when I say we, I mean, the collective industry doesn't know what is working. And Enron's a great example of
1: that. Oh, yeah. 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 Everything
0: was in the numbers. They were selling assets to get their revenue. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a secret, but, you know, Fortune magazine, company of the year, multiple years in a row. And it's an example of the halo effect. If enough people say good things, people simply quote them.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, this has been going on for thousands of years and and we think this is a new phenomenon. And what I find delightful is when I'm able to coach CEOs and I'm starting this online group coaching thing too, because I want to get CEOs in a room and just sort of stimulate this thinking because it's like, wait a minute, this is not new. I think we're caught up as, as a species sometimes and fixating on these thought patterns and it's hard for us to unhook. But those CEOs that can unhook end up having an advantage competitively and taking their companies to new levels. And so I, I think it was, and and it's, it's a, you don't have to look far. I mean, I flew yeah. in from Chicago doing a speech there yesterday on Southwest Airlines. And according to the experts of the airline industry, Southwest wasn't going to make it. Yeah, that's
0: right. I remember that.
1: <laughs> you know, and but then when the market capitalization of Southwest exceeded the entire market cap of the airline industry, all the experts, all the management consultants, kept their money. They didn't return their funds exactly. for the float. Like,
0: and of course, they then wrote case studies about how they identified why Southwest was successful.
1: Exactly, yeah. as the industry always
0: does. Right, it, always yeah. good at looking at the past. Impossible to predict the future.
1: I know and I think what's interesting and one of the books I'm I'm I have written but I haven't published it is as an entrepreneurship because we are now putting people through these entrepreneur trainings and programs and uh, and that's all great it's just that we're finding more and more that entrepreneurship is more of a biological predisposition it's not something you really learn yes because you know if it's not in your makeup for taking risk and failing uh, that's a problem. And so a lot of these authors, to get back to your point, they show up after they're successful and say, look at everything they did right. Yes. But they weren't there when they were suffering. Exactly. They weren't there when they were near bankruptcy. They weren't there when they were losing sleep and you know, their lives were a shambles. And that is where the magic happens right there. But they don't publish any of that in the books.
0: Yeah, I mean, a good example, I use this example a lot with CEOs. I use the example of Pfizer and Viagra. A management mm-hmm. consultant could never have created Viagra. It had to be a scientist. So when you're thinking about all these fancy tools that you're going to bring to your business, you still need the breakthrough product. Yes. And the question yeah. is, how do you create the breakthrough product? And that's the part of mm-hmm. an intuition, seeing things outside. It always surprises me how few executives I work with put it into their diary to spend time with someone from another industry to see how they solve problems
1: yes and i and for ceos i think they don't think about um and it's interesting to say that cuz uh my neighbor uh, down the street is Tr- Trinity but biva who was the doctor who now is at the uh, at Johns Hopkins, who actually mapped out the Viagra pathways. Yes. Uh, okay, good and, example. And I had him, over, <laughs> had him at a party, and me being a geek, I'm say, "Trinity, show me, yeah. show me the camera." And he mapped out this thing in my notebook. So what's really uh, what's interesting is uh, CEOs aren't there, I think, as much to have the ideas as much as to empower those people who can create them. Yes, and I think that's the power, I think the overlooked leadership piece t- talking about what's another twist on thinking here is I think we have to stop teaching leaders that followers are following them. Yes. Because I know when, like when, when Steve Jobs died, he, they wrote books about his leadership style. Yeah. And what did they have to say?
0: <laughs> he was they,
1: a tough guy. It was interesting about that. Cause at the time that my my comrade uh, Cameron Lugman was at at, an Apple and, and they were looking at this innovation thing in the brain, which I thought was fabulous stuff when, when we talked about it, but he, um, I've realized that people weren't following him and I'm thinking, wait a minute, does that mean now used to rock in
0: the handicap space?
1: <laughs> I just did. And I would hate to be a business school professor having to start my, my classes saying everything I'm going to teach you here is irrelevant yes. because the guy who violated everything I'm going to teach you created the most powerful company in the world. But the deeper question is what was going on? Yes. Why were people following him? And that's when we realized in our research followers don't follow leaders, they follow the story the leader represents, yes, the higher purpose. Yes, what we call the compelling saga, the strategic. Oh, I like journey. that
0: the compelling saga.
1: Yeah. It's uh, you know, we fought, you know, we look at these tribes like the Vikings and how did they get people to get on these ships? Yes, they knew they were probably going to die. Yes. And it was there was the story. So I think we should be teaching leaders what's the story you represent? Because that's what people are following.
0: Yes. I mean, I'm a big fan of military history. And mm-hmm. one of the things I've been searching for, because it's very hard to find, is how did Stalin motivate the Russians when on the brink of disaster in World War II? I mean, what did this guy do that would mm-hmm. make these people go out and turn back the Nazi army? Yes. It wasn't yes. rational thinking. It, there was nothing rational. It was completely emotional, right? Yeah. And that's the thing about a you know, compelling saga. It must be emotional.
1: Yes and that's the definition i was like uh cuz when i when i do my ceo workshops and and i go in or, or i go into a company to do these workshops they get it it's like when i raise this up it's like you know your mission statements are great i mean i i'm all for touchy feely motivational statements the problem is is that I think we went a little bit overboard on the happy employee movement.
0: Yes. yes.
1: <laughs> I think uh, all these experts in happy employee movements are forgetting to ask the dangerous question of what do people do when they're not happy? Yeah. And do they lock arms and go into battle with you? Or do they turn and run and leave you stranded alone? Yes. And that's when all of a sudden the lights go on. I said, you know, you need something more than a mission. A compelling saga must be some, some language that inspires passion. For some result that people can't do on their own, but they're going to need each other to achieve it. And they're willing to do the two things that no company teaches and every company should teach. And that is the capacity to suffer and sacrifice together. And nobody teaches suffering and sacrifice unless they're in military. It's church.
0: unpopular. That's the problem.
1: It's totally unpopular. Nobody Political wants to talk
0: industry. about it. It's bad to say we're going to suffer. But I remember there was this episode of Narcos, the hit show on Netflix. And there was a scene when Pablo Escobar, right towards the end, he's going to be arrested. He's hiding in a house. And he asks his lieutenant, you know, where are, the, where are the soldiers? Where's the guys protecting me? And the lieutenant says, well, we have no money. How are we going to pay them? And the point I'm trying to make here is that a paid army is never going to beat a motivated army.
1: Right. Exactly. Because a
0: motivated army will find a way. It's existential for them.
1: Yeah. And that's, the, that's when you see these startup companies. I mean, yes. some of these people aren't getting paid or they're getting paid half. Yes. You know, they're sleeping in their offices. They're enduring hardships. And you look at these stories and it's like, wow. That, you know, to be part of that team, you're a dangerous entity, right? Because yes. you're going up against companies where everybody's comfortable. You know, you, can, you have an advantage. You can outmaneuver a comfortable team.
0: Yes. It's interesting you talk about uh, pain, turmoil, difficulties, because those are seen as liabilities in business today, things to be avoided versus nurtured.
1: Yes, yes, that's, that's why I think this research is, is getting such attention in CEO communities because any entrepreneur knows it's true.
0: Yes, it's not just entrepreneurs. I mean, I remember talking to Gary Hamill and he was talking about how some of these Chinese companies work how mm. the employees work. He was telling me the story of, I think she's, I think, I, I'm not sure she's the wealthiest female entrepreneur in China. And her office is in the factory where she yeah. sleeps upstairs so that she can see what's happening because she wants total control over it. Yes. So this is a situation where she has the money, but she yep. has the drive.
1: And people follow that. More people
0: than follow it- that story. It's not because she probably has a Ferrari, I don't know, maybe, but she has a compelling saga. She's going to do it. I want to work for that lady.
1: Yes. Yeah. And we do, don't we? I mean, we want to follow people like that. And, And we have throughout history and we will into the future. But it's one of those things we fail to teach in our MBA programs and in our corporate training programs.
0: Well, think about recruiting, right? Headhunting. I'm sure you've been through corporate recruitment at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, typically corporate recruitment is, have you done it before? Which school did you go to? Mm-hmm. And are you're a safe bet. But nobody talks about, is this going to be the person who right. is going to lead through everything? No one ever asked that question. I've never seen that ever come yeah. up in an interview.
1: That's true. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, what we try to do is we try to look at, you know, if, you're, if you hire people who believe what you believe, they're a better employee than even somebody who's got a better resume. Yes. And I think it's, uh, in fact, I was doing one CEO group. <laughs> I, I learned so much from putting CEOs in a room and just, or an executive team and, yeah. and raising these questions. And this one guy, he just see his hand slapped the table. He says, that's it, I'm not going to hire Sharon now. And I had just finished doing this compelling saga yeah. piece of the workshop. And I said, why? He said, she's the most brilliant engineer and I, uh, I'm gonna pay her twice as much money to come work for my manufacturing company because we need her engineering talent. And I said, well, why don't you hire her? He says, because of what you just told me. I, says, <laughs> I said, yeah. I don't have a compelling saga and she works for half price for Elon Musk. And he was right. He said, I'll just destroy her. She'll come to work for more money. She'll get bored out of her mind in a year. And, it, you know, I need to create that for my company before I bring her on.
0: It's right. a very interesting story because I was just talking to my team the other day. And I was talking to them, how do we figure out if a company has a compelling saga or not? And then we mm. thought, well, they'll be paying less than the market. Typically, there's some kind of discount to test because people are willing to take some pay cut to follow the compelling saga. Now, it's just a theory, we still have to test this with the numbers and so on. But yeah. I think we will see some of that in the early stages.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see what would the pattern of that be. I'd, that'd be fun to uh, keep in touch with you because I love to see the research on that because it would, it would say something. And also in other cases, I mean, there are stories of companies that, you know, will pay people to leave, you know. Yes. If you, you know. I've
0: seen that in action with some software companies actually. Yes, yeah. And consulting firms do it all the time, actually. yeah. The yeah. Up and up policy.
1: yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's what we should be teaching is are people believing in your path? Are they willing to follow the story you're up to? And uh, that's, a, that's a better organization. And you can outmaneuver the rest because, you know, your best targeted enemies are those comfortable companies or everybody's safe.
0: And yes. Have, well, it's also the way we teach. The ability to create a compelling saga is something we just do not teach people. In fact, right. we kind of beat it out of them when they're in MBA programs, whereby you have to follow this coursework, speak in a certain way, yeah, and tell us. I mean, what's become very popular today is telling a story, but most of those stories are so boring. You know, so, I mean, let's be honest, right? storytelling has become a big business, but if everyone's yeah. telling a story, you just reached parity with everyone else.
1: And you know, I think that's the tool seduction thing. We have people that will present some art, something new, something yes. fresh. And within three years of best selling books, it becomes boiled down to just another tool.
0: Yeah, because it's almost as if the way writers present things, management writers, is they think you can re engineer or reverse engineer intuition.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right. You can't do that. I, mean, I always use that Viagra example because the story is—you obviously know the story better than me. But how did that guy figure out it could be used in this way? I mean, mm. another scientist wouldn't have been able to make that connection,
1: right? And and that's—and you see that throughout history. It's all of a sudden there's this aha, there's this epiphany, and then yes. the world begins to change. And you see this a lot in 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 our civilizations uh, over time and in warfare. And in fact, George Stock is a, as a. If we ever get a chance, we can I can hook you up because he's a he's a, also a historian. I actually do know era.
0: George Stock because I'm. Oh, friends with Paul oh, do. Um, oh, excellent. Paul ex-BCG, X BCGX McKinsey. Yes, I think he's best friends with George Stock. So I've met George before. Brilliant yes. mind, very underrated in my opinion.
1: Very, very much. I'm trying to change that because we spent about an hour. We're together. He is very, very, I love the guy. We spent an hour a week together and we're looking at doing some, uh, some things in the future, maybe like a a CEO online cohort thing. um, But it's, 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 that's, that's the thing that comes out is this, this um, insight. And you're right. We don't teach this as a required course in our MBA training. Um, we just throw a bunch more tools at it and it's like, okay, now go off. But we wonder why did this one company exceed the other when they had the same training and the same books? And it's, it's all about that intuition. I, yeah, it's, um, I'm just trying to get more of this out there faster to more people because yes. it can help so many companies and so many lives, you know, and so many impacts. I mean, when you put it at a country level, how many countries can be transformed if their leaders were able to shift their beliefs?
0: Yes, that's right. And I also think that if you look at real business, and you know, if you've actually been in a boardroom and so on, we tend to be seduced with the idea of analysis influencing a discussion. Right. Oftentimes, in a real boardroom meeting, where the real decisions are made, there's very little analysis that's going to influence a decision that the CEOs already decided to implement.
1: Yeah, right.
0: He's made up his mind. He's looking for what he wants. So she's looking for what she wants. She's, he or she is going to skim what they think is going to support them. Because mm-hmm. when I was in consulting, I know You know, people spend so much time on the perfect analysis. And I say, there's just, the CEO just needs to know two or three things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and as long as you answer those two or three things, you'll save everyone a lot of time and money. You know, People always tell me, what is strategy? It sounds so complex. It's very simple. Find out what people want, go and get it and give it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty much it. <laughs>
1: And I think uh, I think uh, you just reminded me the analysis thing. Part of the seduction there is the way we, th- we think that these plans that come out yeah. of this actually work. Yeah. And uh, when I was, uh, I spent about a year off and I with Matt Eversman when we were studying Black Hawk Down. And I learned a lot about that area of research because I wanted to find out from Black Hawk Down, like what was really going on in yeah. the minds? Uh, and Matt was the main character in the book, in the movie. So I uh, spent a lot of time with him and um, and we spent a lot of time over Italian wine down at one yeah. of the restaurants by Hopkins. The best way to do research. <laughs> <over Canada. laughs> exactly. yeah. And he opened up my eyes to an interesting thing. He says, you know, no plans ever going to work anyway. And that's what yeah. we should be teaching because the enemy has a vote on your plan. And the only way we could, we could handle something like Black Hawk Down is the ability to adapt. And I think that's another thing we don't talk about. We don't uh, teach adaptation in our thoughts because we're trying to get it right. We're trying to look good. We're trying to make the analysis happen, as you were mentioning. But when it comes down to, at the end, saying, you know this probably won't work anyway. How are we going to deal with that? And it's that adaptation thinking, that, uh, which is really an evolutionary design for our species. So let's do it faster. And that's how you win.
0: Yeah, multiple iterations, expect the worst, be ready for it. It's a famous example, I don't know if you've seen this video where, um, was it Bruce Henderson from BCG? He has this marble, a bunch of marbles in a jar. And he says strategy is like trying to take a marble out of the jar. Everything's going to be moving around you. And you don't know where it's going to end up. And I think that's a very good example, because as soon as you take an action as a company, the game plan has changed for everyone. Because you yes. don't know how everyone's going to respond to you.
1: Right. And, it, and you need a culture. of This is what's interesting. It's, it's one thing if you're seeing this as a CEO. But if you cannot surround people who can follow your thinking, then you get resistance and frustration. And that's a problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's true. I like how discussion has evolved. It always comes down to one of the things I tell clients is that everything comes down to the psychology of the leader. Mm-hmm. If the leader has got the right way of thinking, he'll be able to guide people through any problem, or she'll be able to guide them through it always comes down to the psychology of the leader, who is going to say, okay, there's a crisis, how do we benefit from it? There's a crisis, what do we learn from it? Crises are normal, nobody panic, we've got it under control, we're expected at least half of the things we're going to do will fail.
1: Yes, yes. And I, I like the quote, was it Churchill? I'm, I'm probably misquoting, but uh, the theme is great. It's, it's never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. And <laughs> I like that quote. <laughs> and that's the point. And, but we, but you're correct. And what you said, you know, we go through school and we're, we're trying to give everybody the right answers and the right models. And when they come out, they don't know how to think, they don't know how to adapt. They don't know how to take on a good crisis, but I think we should have crisis training and adaption training, uh, adaptation training where people are put in situations to say your plan just went to crap now what are you going to do
0: yes i mean somewhere i read this i can't remember where it was may have been in a book may have been in a bumper sticker where it says that strong people create good times good times create weak people weak people create bad times bad times Mm. create strong people i'd love that and it's Uh, true if you think about it yeah you need bad times to develop the fortitude, the muscle, the capabilities, and so on, to break through and change things.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that, and I think um, we don't, uh, the other thing I try to teach uh, CEOs is that what can you do to test someone's metal in that Mm -hmm. capacity, as you're describing, Uh, because you don't really know it's like we don't have simulation labs where we can see okay we're going to put you in a crisis we're going to watch what you do uh, of course the military does because they put you out on a crisis and yes. they watch what you do so that's how they can find leaders naturally by observing those responses yes. and um i mean i was on tour with the secretary of defense and the joint chiefs uh, some years ago and they went behind the scenes uh, I, I might mean, got shut off an aircraft carrier and this, that, and the other thing, but I was always amazed as how they could, they have a better job than a CEO, an easier, I should say, an easier job than a CEO because they can tell by observing behavior in a situation yes. than a CEO really doesn't get a chance to see. You know, I mean, by the time everybody's in a meeting, everything's polished.
0: Yeah, that's right. And nobody actually wants to admit there's a flaw because it makes them look bad. Right. The thing I always tell, I have many clients who always want to tell me they want to work at this division in the company. It's the best division. I'm thinking, but you actually want to work at the worst division, to be honest. (laughs) Because you learn something, right? You'll build build the skills because if you're working in a good division, what crises are you going to be managing? How do you know that performance is due to you versus the team that's already in place?
1: Right. And I think uh, that is the key is we don't teach... Was it, I think Cotter uh, came up with this. I'm sure you've heard this quote. It's the difference between management and leadership is managers create order, leaders destroy it.
0: Yeah, I like that.
1: But we don't teach leaders to destroy anymore. Yes. We're, we're confusing leaders by making them managers.
0: You know, one of the things, I look at always the macro trends of what's happening. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I always ask CEOs and so on is, if China has grown so rapidly, what does it say about our educational system? because all of our top leaders go to the same schools, roughly. Most of them are Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, and so on. Mm. So what are we teaching that's not right? Why is it that we're losing in some areas? And maybe it's normal to lose, I don't know. But why why do we seem to be losing in some areas? Is that normal? Is that a natural outcome? Is it preordained that China, given its size, will overtake the United States? Or is that something we're not teaching our leaders?
1: Yes, I mean, this whole, it's um, a good point you bring up because as, you know, how many CEOs actually see that they're part of a countrywide cultural initiative? Exactly. And and what does that mean? And how does that drive our our education? And what does the world of the future look like uh, with that? There are really not very many forums. once in a while, you'll see a think tank that'll try to put some of this together. But your average CEO doesn't go into work every day thinking, how am I impacting civilization for the next 100 years? But I think we need to start.
0: You need to start. Because when you have that higher purpose, you do things for the right reasons. You want to leave a legacy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: A positive legacy. I think not enough leaders think about what's going to happen. Who are they going to hand over to? What's the world going to be like in 50 and 100 years because of a decision they made today?
1: Right. And 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 collectively, how can we inspire each other? So I think we get sucked. Uh, the term that I use a lot in in these workshops that I do is is uh, we. Get, how many of you get sucked into operations? Is a question I ask, and almost every hand goes up. Yeah, and that's when I say, look, it's because yeah. underneath there's something weak that needs to be fixed, and it may even be you because you should not be sucked below deck. You need to be mm-hmm. on the upper decks, and. And that's, and that's part of the problem. And I think we don't, um, we don't inspire leaders to think that way. I have to create strong people under me. And when we now see the COVID impact with this mass exodus, this resignation <laughs> revolution yes. that's going on, I'm looking at that thinking, huh, is that a clue? You know, is that a clue that you didn't have a compelling saga. You might have had a a touchy-feely mission statement, and maybe they were there for the money. But now all of a sudden, where'd they go?
0: Where did they go? That's a good question. And you can't see that if you look at just your company. It's the macro data, the big picture movements. right? And too often, leaders just see themselves as a custodian of their business versus trying to understand how they are contributing because if we all go to the same schools we're all thinking in the same ways maybe we need to change the way we think about things
1: yeah and i think that's a challenge for our educational system is how can we begin teaching differently to incorporate these ideas
0: thank you so much don that was a fabulous conversation i think our audience is going to love it i enjoyed it amazing it was amazing because every time i noticed there's always a disconnect either Some people are really obsessed with the tools and they don't realize it's not really going to do anything for you unless you know how to use it. And then we get to the point of understanding intuition, judgment, creativity, and what allows leaders to have that capability and be able to sell an entire organization on that. Yeah, yeah. And I like the idea of a compelling saga as opposed to storytelling, because I think storytelling has become cliched.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And everyone's telling a story. It's ultimately a very boring story with no viewers. Yes. <laughs> well, take care, Don. That was excellent. We'll be in touch. But well, thank you for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.